Section 11 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April Walters. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 2 of the Chemical Knowledge Possessed by the Ancients, Part 6. 11. Miscellaneous Observations. The ancients seem to have been ignorant of the nature and properties of air and of all gaseous bodies. Pliny's account of air consists of a single sentence, Erdensatur nubibus, furit procellus. Air is condensed in clouds, it rages in storms. Norris's description of water much more complete, since it consists only of the following phrases, aquae sibiciunt in imbres, regescunt in grandines, tumescunt in fluctus precipitantur in torrentes. Water falls in showers, congeals in hail, swells in waves, and rushes down in torrents. In the 38th chapter of the second book, indeed, he professes to treat of air, but the chapter contains merely an enumeration of meteorological phenomena, without once touching upon the nature and properties of air. Pliny, with all the philosophers of antiquity, admitted the existence of the four elements, fire, air, water, and earth. But, though he enumerates these in the fifth chapter of his first book, he never attempts to explain their nature or properties. Earth, among the ancients, had two meanings, namely, the planet on which we live, and the soil upon which vegetables grow. These two meanings still exist in common language. The meaning afterward given to the term, earth, by the chemists, did not exist in the days of Pliny, or at least was unknown to him. A sufficient proof that chemistry, in his time, had made no progress as a science, for some notions respecting the properties and constituents of those supposed four elements must have constituted the very foundation of scientific chemistry. The ancients were acquainted with none of the acids, which at present constitute so numerous a tribe, except vinegar, or acetic acid, and even this acid was not known to them in a state of purity. They knew none of the saline bases, except lime, soda, and potash, and these very imperfectly. Of course, the whole tribe of salts was unknown to them, except a very few, which they found ready formed in the earth, or which they succeeded in forming by the action of vinegar on lead and copper. Hence, all that extensive and most important branch of chemistry, consisting of the combinations of the acids and bases, on which scientific chemistry mainly depends, must have been unknown to them. Sulfur, occurring native in large quantities, and being remarkable for its easy combustibility and its disagreeable smell when burning, was known in the very earliest ages. Pliny describes four kinds of sulfur, differing from each other probably merely in their purity. These were, one, sulfur vivum or apiron. It was dug out of the earth solid and was doubtless pure or nearly so. It alone was used in medicine. Two, gleba, used only by fullers. Three, agula, used also by fullers. Pliny says it renders woolen stuffs white and soft. It is obvious from this that the ancients knew the method of bleaching flannel by the fumes of sulfur as practiced by the moderns. 4. The fourth kind was used only for sulfuring matches. Sulfur in Pliny's time was found native in the Aeolian islands and in Campania. It is curious he never mentioned Sicily, 
whence the great supply is drawn for modern manufacture. In medicine, it seems to have been used only externally by the ancients. It was considered as excellent for removing eruptions. It was also used for fumigating. The word alumen, which we translate alum, occurs often in Pliny, and is the same substance which the Greeks distinguished by the name of stipteria. It is described pretty minutely by Dioscorides and also by Pliny. It was obviously a natural production, dug out of the earth, and consequently quite different from our alum, with which the ancients were unacquainted. Dioscorides says it was found abundantly in Egypt, that it was of various kinds, but that the slaty variety was the best. He mentions also many other localities. He says that, for medical purposes, the most valued of all the varieties of alumen were the slaty, the round, and the liquid. The slaty alumen is very white, has an exceedingly astringent taste, a strong smell, is free from stony concretions, and gradually cracks and emits long capillary crystals from these rifts, on which account it is sometimes called trichites. This description obviously applies to a kind of slate clay, which probably contained pyrites mixed with it of the decomposing kind. The capillary crystals were probably similar to those crystals at present called hair salt by mineralogists, which exude pretty abundantly from the shale of coal beds when it has been long exposed to the air. Hair salt differs very much in its nature. Kleproth ascertained by analysis that the hair salt from the quicksilver mines in Idria is sulfate of magnesia mixed with a small quantity of sulfate of iron. The hair salt from the abandoned coal pits in the neighborhood of Glasgow is a double salt, composed of sulfate of alumina and sulfate of iron, in definite proportions, the composition being one atom protosulfate of iron, one and a half atom sulfate of alumina, 15 atoms water. I suspect strongly that the capillary crystals from the Chitose alumen of Dioscorides were nearly of the same nature. From Pliny's account of the uses to which alumen was applied, it is quite obvious that it must have varied very much in its nature. Alumen nigrum was used to strike a black color and must therefore have contained iron. It was doubtless an impure native sulfate of iron, similar to many native productions of the same nature still met with in various parts of the world, but not employed, their use having been superseded by various artificial salts more definite in their nature, and consequently more certain in their application, and, at the same time, cheaper and more abundant than the native. The alumen employed as a mordant by the dyers must have been a sulfate of alumina more or less pure. At least it must have been free from all sulfate of iron, which would have affected the color of the cloth and prevented the dyer from accomplishing its object. What the alumen rotundum was is not easily conjectured. Dioscorides says that it was sometimes made artificially, but that artificial alumen rotundum was not much valued. The best, he says, was full of air bubbles, nearly white and of a very astringent taste. It had a slaty appearance and was found in Egypt or the island of Milos. The liquid alumen was limpid, milky, of an equal color, free from hard concretions and having a fiery shade of color. In its nature, it was similar to the alumen candidium, it must therefore have consisted chiefly, at least, of sulfate of alumina. Bitumen and naphtha were known to the ancients and used by them to give light instead of oil. They were employed also as external applications in case of disease and were considered as having the same virtues as sulfur. 
It is said that the word translated salt in the New Testament, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. It is said that the word salt in this passage refers to asphalt or bitumen, which was used by the Jews in their sacrifices and called salt by them. But I have not been able to find satisfactory evidence of the truth of this opinion. It is obvious from the context that the word translated salt could not have had that meaning among the Jews, because salt can never be supposed to lose its savor. Bitumen, while liquid, has a strong taste and smell, which it loses gradually by exposure to the air as it approaches more and more to a solid form. Asphalt was one of the great constituents of the Greek fire. A great bed of it still existing in Albania supplied the Greeks with this substance. Concerning the nature of Greek fire, it is clear that many exaggerated and even fabulous statements have been published. The obvious intention of the Greeks being, probably, to make their invention as much dreaded as possible by their enemies. Nitre was undoubtedly one of the most important of its constituents, though no allusion whatever is made. We do not know when nitrate of potash, the nitre of the moderns, became known in Europe. It was discovered in the East, and was undoubtedly known in China and India before the commencement of the Christian era. The property of nitre, as a supporter of combustion, could not have remained long unknown after the discovery of the salt. The first person who threw a piece of it upon a red-hot coal would observe it. Accordingly, we find that its use in fireworks was known very early in China and India, though its prodigious expansive power, by which it propels bullets with so great and destructive velocity, is a European invention, posterior to the time of Roger Bacon. The word nitre had been applied by the ancients to carbonate of soda, a production of Egypt where it is still formed from seawater by some unknown process of nature in the marshes near Alexandria. This is evident not merely from the account given of it by Dioscorides and Pliny, for the following passage from the Old Testament shows it had the same meaning among the Jews. As he that taketh away a garment in cold weather is as vinegar upon nitre, so is he that singeth songs to a heavy heart. Vinegar poured upon saltpeter produces no sensible effect whatever, but when poured upon carbonate of soda, it occasions an effervescence. When saltpeter came to be imported to Europe, it was natural to give it the same name as that applied to carbonate of soda, to which both in taste and appearance it bore some faint resemblance. Saltpeter, possessing a much more striking properties than carbonate of soda, much more attention was drawn to it, and it gradually fixed upon itself the term nitre, at first applied to a different salt. When this change of nomenclature took place does not appear, but it was completed before the time of Roger Bacon, who always applies the term nitrum to our nitrate of potash and never to carbonate of soda. In the preceding history of the chemical facts known to the ancients, I have taken no notice of a well-known story related of Cleopatra. This magnificent and profligate queen boasted to Anthony that she would herself consume a million of cistertii at a supper. Antony smiled at the proposal and doubted the possibility of her performing it. Next evening, a magnificent entertainment was provided, which Antony, as usual, was present, and expressed his opinion that the cost of the feast, magnificent as it was, fell far short of the sum specified by the queen. She requested him to defer computing till the dessert was finished. A vessel filled with vinegar was placed before her, in which she threw two pearls, the finest in the world, 
and which were valued at ten millions of sesterity. These pearls were dissolved by the vinegar, and the liquid was immediately drunk by the queen. Thus she made good her boast, and destroyed the two finest pearls in the world. This story, supposing it true, shows that Cleopatra was aware that vinegar has the property of dissolving pearls, but not that she knew the nature of these beautiful productions of nature. We now know that pearls consist essentially of carbonate of lime, and that the beauty is owing to the thin concentric laminae of which they are composed. Nor have I taken any notice of lime, with which the ancients were well acquainted, and which they applied to most of the uses to which the moderns put it. Thus it constituted the base of the Roman mortar, which is known to have been excellent. They employed it also as a manure for the fields, as the moderns do. It was known to have a corrosive nature when taken internally, but was much employed by the ancients externally, and in various ways as an application to ulcers. Whether they knew its solubility in water does not appear, though from the circumstance of its being used for making mortar, this fact could hardly escape them. These facts, though of great importance, could scarcely be applied to the rearing of a chemical structure, as the ancients could have no notion of the action of acids upon lime, or of the numerous salts which it is capable of forming. Phenomena which must have remained unknown till the discovery of the acids enabled experimenters to try their effects upon limestone and quicklime. Not even a conjecture appears in any ancient writer that I have looked into about the difference between quicklime and limestone. This difference is so great that it must have been remarked by them, yet nobody seems ever to have thought of attempting to account for it. Even the method of burning or calcining lime is not described by Pliny, though there can be no doubt that the ancients were acquainted with it. Nor have I taken any notice of leather or the method of tanning it. There are so many allusions to leather and its uses by the ancient poets and historians that the acquaintance of the ancients with it is put out of doubt. But, so far as I know, there is no description of the process of tanning in any ancient author whatever. End of section 11. Recording by April Walters.